Yo. Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors. Wherever you are in the world, welcome to the Day In, Day Out podcast. Woo! Today on episode 269, I'm very happy to have Jim Edwards. Oh, friend from time before. <laughs> he is the former chief editor of Insider, and he has uh, written a book. Mm, someone's getting multi-talented, I can see. Uh, yes, his book is called Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager. Mm. How are you today, sir? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. Uh no, the pleasure's all mine. The pleasure's all mine. Uh, we're, before we started, I said, we were talking about how long it's been since we've actually seen each other in person. And like, yeah, you were saying 2018. Hey, God. Something like that. It's been a long time. Yeah. Um, pandemic obviously got in the way. You you moved out of London. <laughs> Lo lots of things have happened. Yeah, but this is the thing. You were in Crouch End, weren't you? Are you uh, near Crouch End. I'm in uh, Wood Green. Ah, uh, you see, I like I was in Crouch End. We were like literally just a stone throws away. We yeah. could have walked to each other's houses. Yes, indeed. Uh, because I was just like a place called Avenue Road, uh, just near the clock, like near the clock tower, near the church. okay, yeah, mm. yeah, near the King's yeah. Head. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Now, I have to ask. No. You've like basically you have had a long illustrious career in the realm of media, but like yeah, what made you decide to get into doing a book of all things? Um, well, I had uh, truthfully I had been at Insider for ten years, yeah, and towards the end, um, usually at the end of every calendar year, I sort of uh, have a take a quiet moment with just on my own with myself and ask myself what do I really want to do next year like do I want to continue doing the same job or should I do something else mm. um and the answer to that question almost every year was uh no I'm going to stay at Insider because uh Insider is a great place to work and the company had been very good to me and it was the best job I ever had um but towards the end uh I was the editor-in-chief of the news division I was supervising nearly 100 people um uh, which was great because the division had grown and was successful. Um, but I was starting my day on the phone to Singapore. I was ending my day often very late at night on the phone to Los Angeles. Um, and doing that for a number of years uh, straight, it was, I mean, I was tired, right? You know, uh, uh, there was some burnout there. I really enjoyed the work. And it's, you know, if you're in the news business, you um, you do work long hours or you're... Uh, you're you're kind of always on, you know. You're you you have your phone at the ready in case something happens, like like the Queen dying, for instance. So I know that the Insider News team right now is working some really long hours uh, covering the death of the Queen. Um, but towards the end of that ten year period, uh, starting about two years ago, I thought actually, if I if I ever did want to leave, I'd want to like have some kind of plan in front of me, mm -hmm. something else to look forward to. And I thought I've always thought it would be nice to write a book. But the key with writing a book is you've got to write about something, you know, um, something you're an expert in, some, like a story that you're particularly close to. Um, and, uh, in, you know, in, Insider had grown from a blog that literally, you know, 10 years ago, no one read it. No one took it seriously. Um, it had a handful of employees. 
And now it's grown into this sort of global media giant. Um, it's very dominant in its space. It's very commercially successful. They won a Pulitzer this year. Um, and I just thought to myself, you know what? What if I what if I wrote a book about uh, that was sort of inspired by the management culture, which is very different from uh, most companies, which uh, are often sort of very toxic, frankly, and not much fun to work at. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I, I I knew this one guy in publishing. Chris Parker at Harriman House and I emailed him and said, if I wrote a book of management advice, you know, based on what I've learned over the years at Insider and other places, would you be interested? And he he said yes. So um I just thought it would be an interesting project. Um and the, I learned a lot on the job. I did not start out at Insider as a manager of any kind, really. I was brought on to write about advertising. I think I supervised two people when I started. Um, but most of my job was, you know, reporting and writing and um, not really managing anyone. And by the end, as I said, I was supervising nearly 100 people and I had to learn how to do that along the way. And it turns out that's actually really difficult. Um, and I made a, lo- a lot of mistakes. And uh, but anyone can do it if you really, you know, if you put the effort in. And at the end, I just thought, you know, I've <laughs> I wish someone had handed me this book at the very beginning. <laughs> that would have solved a lot of problems. I could have just read it in a single afternoon and um, not had to learn on the job. Um, the main, you know, the, the main thing is that managing people is completely different from doing the job. You know, I went in to do a job, which is journalism and write news. Um, but the job I ended up doing was managing people. And that is completely different from uh, writing, reporting and, ed- and editing. It's a separate job. It's a new job. And I think people don't quite realize that that is the case. When you are promoted into management or to supervise anyone, even if you're just supervising one or two other people, you have a new job. You have a brand new job that is going to require a completely different set of skills. Yeah. Um, And uh, no one ever really makes that clear to you. They just say, oh, you're great at the old job. Why don't we give you a new title with a higher uh, salary and, um, you know, do your best? Mm. No, I can imagine like being promoted into like basically managing, running a team. It's difficult because the very thing you've gone into doing in the initial in the beginning, you're now being slowly moved away from it. If and if you truly loved what you were doing, it you're like getting into this new realm, like into this new area where it's like might be totally alien to you. Uh, yeah, I can imagine in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So in the media world, you know, you your best reporter, typically the person the person on your team who's your best reporter, the one getting the most scoops and doing the best stories. Mm. The temptation is to make them an editor um, supervising other people. And in, in, in many ways, that makes no sense at all, because if they're good at being a reporter, why would you stop them being a reporter? You know, now they might turn out to be a really excellent editor and, and actually as an editor, you do want someone who has the proper hands-on experience and skills. You know, you want someone who knows how to do that. But it's uh, supervising other people is a completely different task. The way, the way I've sort of talked about it, it this isn't in the book, but it's yeah. a similar analogy, is if you look at my favorite football team, Liverpool FC. So Mo Salah is the striker. Very good team. Yeah. Very good team. I like <laughs> yes. it. I like that team. Like, like, yeah, respect you on that. So <laughs> top scorer, right? The top scorer is Mo Salah, the, stri- the legendary striker of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. If if Liverpool FC was like any other company and not a famous football club, what the management there would say is they would go to Mo Salah and they would say, great job scoring all those go- goals, Mo. Why don't we put you in charge of the whole club? 
And, you know, you can sort of like leverage your skills and experience and maybe everybody that you delegate to will suddenly start scoring more goals. And that, of course, is completely ridiculous. You would never want to do that. You want to leave well, Mo Salah on the pitch doing what he does best. And you want to have someone else managing the club. Yeah. Push back in you slightly on there. Um, okay. It seemed to work out well for Kenny Dugleish. Uh, yeah, it did work out pretty well. But my a better example, in my opinion, will be Jurgen Klopp, who famously was not a, bit, a great football player. Absolutely. He was like competent, but not not very good. And he talked a good game on the pitch. I think, didn't Jurgen? He started out as a striker. It turned out he wasn't that great at that, so they moved him to midfield. Yeah, terrific in midfield. He ended up in defence before. <laughs> sort of. If ended he, up on, and then he ended up on the bench, sort of like as a coach. Like he's, they've constantly sort of demoted him, essentially into management. <laughs> Indeed, like, it's like, I'm, yeah, it's like I'm. No, being a striker is not you, Jurgen. Um, oh, midfield, midfield is not quite for you, Jurgen. Uh, defense, yeah, defense. Uh, goalkeeper? Mm. <laughs> like, mm. No, no, just sit on the bench. Oh, you might have come up with a great idea or strategy, but. I would say in many respects, um, like when you take football into example, like a great footballer seldom makes a great manager. And like, yeah, I would say if you've got, I would imagine if you've got a mediocre reporter, they might not be the best reporter in the field and everything like this, but they might know how to organize people a lot better. And they might yeah. take to that like a duck to water, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, a big part of it is, do you enjoy teaching people the basics of a job? Mm. Do you enjoy, you know, coaching and encouraging people and uh, helping other people succeed? Again, that is a completely different job from doing the job. And this isn't, by the way, this, this book is not just about the media and the news business. It's about any type of business. Um, but, the, but there is one of the major problems if, if you are promoted into management and you have to supervise people is you encounter this thing Um that I call the existential crisis of management, which is that you are no longer doing the work. Someone else is doing the work. You're delegating that work to them. They have to do it. If they do it well, you probably won't get any credit yes. because all the credit will go to them. If something goes wrong, if they do it badly, you will definitely be held accountable and blamed <laughs> for it because you are their boss. Um, either way, you are not the one doing the work. You are entirely dependent on them to do the work. So there's this alienation, there's this disconnect between uh, you, the manager, and the work that is being done. And the other irony about that is that uh, management is necessary. Uh, teams of people do need managers to supervise what they do, to organize what they do, to communicate across teams and with people about what, what the big plan is and what the, go the goals are and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and even though you are not doing the work, supervising the work, actually turns out to be a lot of work yeah no like this is the thing absolutely you're right uh being a manager or you could just like sit like basically slash a leader uh management management and leadership they are both the same coin in my opinion but with regards to how that's changed say over the 10 years you like started out that mm -hmm. must be a very interesting time because look there was a very much a set way of doing things then like yeah internet came in and like it started to go one way and it was like mm -hmm. it looked like it was fixed to go in this direction now we're in a i would say a very sort of weird place of the gray when it sort of comes to management and leadership 
uh, with regards to hybrid working and like people trying to sort of figure out things uh, post pandemic, you could say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this was a, uh, a big challenge actually at Insider because when the pandemic came in, you know, we immediately sent our people home. Actually, uh, we sent our people home a week before the British government ah. told everyone to go home because we were covering this news and we could see it coming. And mm. uh, a lot of private uh, companies that uh, were in the types of businesses that involved gathering people together in crowds decided mm-hmm. to stop doing that. They didn't want to take the risk. And uh, so we saw the writing on the wall and we were like, OK, everybody go home. And I, I do remember that meeting where we uh, there was an all hands in the office in London. And, um, you know, we sort of stood up, one of us addressed and we said, OK, we're going to go home. We'll isolate in quarantine um, and probably we'll see you all back here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, two years later. <laughs> uh, so we we went into quarantine and at first like everybody we thought this is going to be terrible it's going to be horrible we can't communicate with each other properly no one's sitting in the same room anymore uh we thought it would be um we thought it would really uh hurt us or damage our performance weirdly it didn't um weirdly we actually got better we got slightly better and slightly faster um i think because, you, you know, the, the initial advantage is now there is basically only two channels of communication, Slack and email, and that's pretty much it. Whereas before there would be Slack, email, meetings, one-on-one conversations, all-hands meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Ah. Um, so the whole sort of the, the, the work surface, if you like, became incredibly simplified. And also because people are at home, they can work without interruption. So if you're a writer working without interruption turns about, out to be enormously valuable. Um, uh, so for a period, it was actually the performance of the entire company went up um, and Insider did very, very well during the pandemic. Now, as time dragged on, disadvantages began to kick in. Mm-hmm. And the, the most obvious one was we'd start to get questions from staff who were like really worrying and really stressing about various issues that did not exist. <laughs> um, because... You know, in the old days, you're sitting in a crowded office and if you have a worry, you can just ask your colleague, you know, should I do should I do A or B? And the Mm -hmm. colleague would just say, oh, forget about A, just do B, because, you know, the managers don't care at all about A, you know, just forget about it. Don't do it. And that concern would be solved in a 30 second chat, you know, just in the kitchen or at the water cooler or whatever. But because everyone's at home in the pandemic and they're just on their own, those conversations no longer exist. So Mm. people can start worrying about things and they're having a conversation inside their head instead of with their colleagues. And, um, you you know, and I've done this, I've been there. You can really build up an anxiety about something inside your head. If you don't have good communication with uh, the people you need to talk to. Um, So we lost a lot of that. And uh, I think also the worry was you lose a lot of like random conversations with people who are maybe not in your department, Mm -hmm. uh, people at the company you've not met before because you're not just sort of bumping into them or seeing them every day. Um, So, yeah, we we lost a bit of that. And um, now the the company is like a hybrid thing. Some people go in, some people don't. Um, In London, for instance, uh, Thursdays became a big day where pretty much everyone would try to go in on Thursday and then the team would go for drinks in the pub afterwards. So, so it, we were sort of retained some socialization, 
but also on the other days, you know, if you were, if you had childcare issues or you just had a big project on and, and you didn't want to be interrupted, mm. um, you know, you stay at home. Yeah. No, because like, this is the thing, like when you say, yeah, the small things start to get sweated and they become bigger, like issues, like I would imagine also that sort of, like sort of realm of spontaneous creativity is kind of lost because if you're getting on a Slack, uh, like putting your, like, send out a message in slack you've then got to wait for a reply yeah and then like it's just many more steps and much more friction within the process but i do find it interesting that yeah there are some things where it cuts away the sort of fat from the yeah you know what i mean Um, so yeah i mean i'm a big sort of social person i like talking to people face to face um i've got that about you (laughs) 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 Uh, you know, I like to I like to feel someone's vibe, you know, because it, it's only when you meet someone face to face that you can really tell if you're on the same page, if they understand what you're saying. Mm. Uh, a classic example is, you know, try making a sarcastic remark in Slack. Huh. Half of the people will think you're serious and the other half, you know, half will understand that you're joking and you can really offend people accidentally by, you know, just making a joke. Um, but th- another way, another a weird advantage was, um, for instance, one year we asked people to come up with like really big story ideas. We wanted to pick a handful of projects where we would just uh, like really big sort of investigations or really in-depth features where we would pour resources in, uh, but we would only pick a small number of them. And the first year uh, in this process, we had like a big meeting where we had, you know, everyone, think some of us were were in a room some of us were on video but it was like a big all hands meeting and ideas were discussed like in a brainstorm session like on mass right and uh we got some okay ideas some pretty good ideas um i mean my feeling about it a a year later after we'd after we had executed the ideas was we got good ideas but what we didn't get was like really like holy shit excellent ideas the next time we did that meeting we were in the pandemic, so we were all isolated. And so I changed the format of the meeting and I said, you know what? I want to do the exact opposite. I want everyone to take some time away from the screens and isolate themselves and just think on their own about what they personally think would be a huge story. And then I want them to submit it anonymously into a form. So if their idea if their idea is stupid, no one will be embarrassed, right? Because no one will know who proposed the ideas. And so when we did that, we got much better ideas. Like we got some really excellent ideas because people were not afraid of airing their crazy shit in public, basically. <laughs> and, and frankly, you know, to get a really excellent idea, sometimes you really do need to consider the crazy shit at the extreme end. Mm. And you need to create an environment in which in which people are not socially inhibited from suggesting something that's like way out on one end, one end of the agenda. So again, there there are weird advantages to this sort of, remote work isolation thing and i want to make you know i want to make it clear i'm not one of these people who's like yes i love it when everyone is isolated and remote and no one talks to each other that is absolutely not who i am or what i'm recommending but there are weird advantages to um you know to this i mean look you're in you're in lemington spa right yeah i'm in london yep you and i are having the most in-depth conversation we've had in four years because of this technology (laughs) you know so it's so it's like this is helpful for me and you you know even though um 
even though re- really we should have done this in the pub in London. Well, hey, yeah, you know what? Like, <laughs> this is the thing. I, if I was still in London, like, yeah, being like the locations where we were, yes. Uh, while you're consuming the beer in like North London, would have been like consuming beers together. And yeah, be, like, yes. Uh, for that, and by the way, for those of your listeners who think I'm now some kind of alcoholic, I just want to point out it's seven thirty on a Friday night. <laughs> Look, no one's going to judge you, sir. No one's going to judge you. Look, it's a, it's just one of those things. You're having a relaxing beverage. So am I. It happens to be like a cherry Pepsi Max at this present time. It's like, yeah, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> I can't get like three sheets to the wind. Like, yeah, Lord, let me tell you something, child. <laughs> oh. But the whole thing is, yeah, I do. I, I do enjoy this technology. We sit here and have this communication, like conversation right now. It is good. It is excellent. Is it ideal? Not always because like, yeah, the fate, like if we were having this conversation face to face, there would be a little bit more natural chemistry. And look, trust me, I have sat down and done a number of these podcast episodes uh, Mm -hmm. across the wave, like air, like the airwaves, the internet, the the social network, the metaverse, however you want to describe it. Uh, But yeah, the times where I've had people in and we've been having that conversation uh, face to face, it's been better. Uh, in my opinion, and yeah, if like one day, one day when this podcast makes money, one day, one day, Jim, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope to have a studio where I can bring in people on a regular basis, and yes, uh, just chat, like chat, chew, like chew the fat, and like take things forward from there, you know, yeah, but like that's good, yeah, but I am interested, like yeah. What can someone learn from America's worst pizza restaurant and their like model of leadership? <laughs> I think you might be referring to a chapter in the book. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is called America's Worst Ever Pizza Restaurant as a Model of Good Leadership. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to remember when this was. Was it 2011? Something like that. <laughs> um. I can't remember the year. It was roughly 2011 or maybe 2009 or something like that. Um, So Domino's uh, was the pizza restaurant in question, but obviously very famous restaurant chain. And their sales just like went into free fall. um, And they hadn't changed the recipe of the pizza in something like 25 years. Um, And you got to bear in mind, like when Domino's started off, which was, I think was sort of late sixties, early seventies, the idea of having a pizza delivered to your front door was revolutionary. And so the quality of it didn't really matter. And also back in the 60s and 70s, people's taste, the sophistication of their taste was fa- fairly primitive. If you're if you're an older person and you remember what food was like in the 70s, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not like it is today. Um, so Domino's proposition, we will cook a pizza and deliver it to your door, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago. This was completely revolutionary. Fast forward to the 2000s. They haven't changed the recipe. Jim. Oh no, you're frozen. Jim, you're coming back to me? Pizza is. I've been to Chicago. I I lost you briefly for a moment. Like uh, okay, I hope I'm back. I can hear you. Yep, I can see you. You're moving, you're talking. Okay. Uh you Very said good. after 25 years they didn't change their recipe. Yeah. Um, 
so the, how <laughs> did you did, did you hear a bit about food in the 70s I heard about the food in the 70s and how exciting it it was. Mm. Uh, oh, okay. Let me all right, let me wow, you missed a lot. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll 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 just rewind. Uh so Domino's started I think in the late 60s or the 70s and their yeah. original proposition was we will cook you a pizza and deliver it to your front door and at that time 40 years ago that was regarded as revolutionary. Mm. Right? You you couldn't you couldn't do you you previously couldn't do that um fast forward to today people's tastes are much more sophisticated people have been to italy people have been to new york people have been to chicago they know what really good pizza tastes like and the quality of pizza and all foods has become better and more sophisticated over time but dominoes have not changed since like the 60s or the 70s whenever it, it had started and its pizza uh just tasted uh, disgusting basically and so sales went into free fall they'd lost something like 15% of the sales um the stock was tanking uh the you know the size of the chain was uh, shrinking basically um and so they did something that was like really really brave um many companies hold focus groups where they get customers in to talk about um their feelings about the product and mm. usually these focus groups are kept complete secret right and they're held literally in windowless rooms so that the information inside them can't be leaked. Um, and they'd have been having these focus groups. And in these focus groups, universally, Domino's customers were saying, this is the worst pizza I've ever had. It's disgusting. The bread is horrible. The sauce is horrible. The cheese is horrible. Like, it's really, really bad. And they were saying, you know, it feels like there's no love here. There are no fresh ingredients. Um, the, the crust tastes like cardboard. Uh, so they had all these videos of their customers saying this is totally, totally disgusting. And they, they realized the um, Patrick Doyle was the uh, chief executive and him and his team realized that they were basically in a crisis and uh, they had to do something really brave and dramatic to get out of it. So what they did was they showed all these videos to their top management team at the headquarters in Ann Arbor. And they basically said, look, we have to change everything. We have to completely redesign our pizza from scratch uh first of all and so they tried dozens of different types of cheese dozens of different types of bread different sauce etc cetera, etc cetera, until they reformulated a completely brand new product and um and then and this was the really brave part they used the horrible videos of the focus groups uh saying how much they hated domino's pizza they turned those into a series of tv commercials and uh, viral videos on the web um, which is extremely unusual and very brave for a, uh, for a company to do that because companies always keep their bad news a secret, right? So they had the, they had these videos out and, and, and at the end of each ad or, or each video, uh, Patrick Doyle or some executive from Domino's would say, you know, we hear, we hear you, this is not acceptable and we've changed and we hope you'll give us a second chance because the pizza is brand new. Um, they also, um, the, uh, they were quite funny and sort of uh, self-deprecating about it. They um, they basically stalked some of their customers who'd left comments on social media uh, going on about how terrible the pizza was. And so they'd show up at these customers' houses and say, you know, we beg your forgiveness and we've got a new pizza. Would you try it? And these people would uh, sort of, you know, be bullied into trying a slice of pizza on the doorstep. And of course, they liked it because it was better. Um, and the whole thing was put together in in, in a very clever way it's very charming and it's, it's actually quite moving because the employees of Domino's are genuinely 
um, like like they're genuinely upset and disturbed about the fact that they are making a product that everyone regards as terrible. Um, and they are quite emotional about the fact that they had to work really hard and basically admit what we are doing is crap and we have to change. Um, it's change or die kind of situation. And um, they turned it around. And within, uh, you know, a couple of years, um, they were growing again and the stock had like quintupled in value. Um, and the the reason I say it's um, you, that America's worst ever uh, pizza restaurant was is a great example of good leadership is because uh, Patrick Doyle, the chief of the company, um, he's a very ordinary guy, really. <laughs> I mean, he's very successful at what he does. But, you know, he's not good looking. He's not sexy. He's not like charismatic like Steve Jobs um, or one of these people. He basically he just had a plan and he, he went to his entire company and he said, look, we've got we're in real trouble and I'm not going to bullshit you. But this is basically a crisis and we have to change everything we do. That was the first. So he was completely transparent about the fact that they had a massive problem. Mm. And then the second thing he did was he said, here's the plan. We have to change everything, which is very difficult to say to uh I, th I think they had like nine thousand employees or something i can't remember i'm um i'm gonna get that wrong uh tens of thousands of employees anyway it's very difficult to go to everyone you work with and basically say what you have been doing is crap and you now need to learn something completely new people hate hearing that um but he did it anyway so he's very transparent and honest and then he sort of laid out exactly what would have to happen and it turns out that at a pizza restaurant the the scale of dominoes it means almost every single employee had to learn to do something new they even had to redesign the boxes that the pizza came in they had to relearn you know every ingredient is different so all the buyers have to buy new ingredients the recipe is now different so every pizza has to be cooked in a different way all the machines that cook the food have to be recalibrated differently etc etc like it, it touched everyone inside this inside this company um, but to get them all on the same page, he basically laid it out very, very clearly and said, this is the challenge we have. We have to succeed at it. It's going to it will be a lot of hard work. His, um, uh, many members of his team worked weekends and worked nights. You know, he was he was like, it's always very difficult to ask people, you know, will you work a weekend? Um, but, you know, sometimes if uh, you're on a mission and you want the mission to succeed, you have to put in extra hours. Um, and uh, he did. And the. the the lesson I drew from this, and there's a better description of this in the book than what I've just given you, is that good leadership doesn't look like a TED talk, right? It doesn't look like in the movies where some guy stands on a desk and, and goes, yay, and like rallies the team and everyone, he gets a standing ovation and people throw things. That's not at all what leadership looks like in real life. In, in real life, it's basically you level with people and you say, okay, everybody, I'm not going to bullshit you. I'm going to completely tell you the truth. We have a problem. We need to solve it. I've got a plan to solve it. And here is your role within the plan. And here, here is the goal we're aiming for. So please work towards that. I appreciate that this, this is going to be a lot of hard work. But if we succeed, it will absolutely be worth it. Um, it's, uh, it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. No, like this is the thing. Like when it comes to like on that the story, which you've told quite eloquently. Thank you. Uh, like the whole thing is, yeah. They like they sat down, they listened to their customers, they were brave enough to show the world that they are listening and they are willing to make the effort to change, which you know what? When people like, oh yeah, and I think this is where a lot of people fail in leadership, 
they go, I'm, I've heard what you've said. I've listened to you. And then they just carry on their merry way. It's like, oh, but you haven't, you haven't listened to us. Yeah. You haven't really put anything into action. You haven't listened to our concerns. The, the other tactical advantage of doing what they did was mm. that there was a lot of people out there um, who were on the internet, for instance, who were quite happy to say, Domino's is shit. Domino's is terrible. Why, yeah. why would I eat that? But by doing this and by publicly advertising the fact that they realized that their product was awful, um, they kind of draw a line on it and, it and it prevents the critics from saying anything further about it because they're like, they're saying, we admit we were terrible. Yeah, but we have turned this around, and now we have a new thing, and this is the new thing. So you draw a line under it, and it does, and the and you leave the baggage in the past, basically. Mm. And like this is the thing, I'm not too sure there are that many sort of leaders or in management who would be prepared to do that. They would be quite happy to carry on in their merry little way, uh, but they never really sort of address those issues or problems or take the time out to devise a plan to make things better which frustrates everyone at the end of the day yeah it is it is really easy in management it's um it's easy to ignore problems it's actually it's it's difficult to sort of come out and transparently say you know what guys we have screwed this up and Mm. now we need to do something else um and often in management the temptation is that even when you realize there's a problem uh that needs to be solved and you're gonna uh you you know you're going to be asking people to do something new and it's going to be difficult and it might take a long time. There is a temptation to spin that or to couch that plan in a very positive, upbeat language. Mm-hmm. As if what you're asking people to do is a pleasure and will be awesome, <laughs> you know, and uh, you're an idiot if you don't like this. Um, I mean, people are not idiots, you know, they, they know if a project is going to uh, make them work harder. Mm. So it's, you know, it's worth just saying to people, you know, look, we need, we need to do this. We don't really have an alternative because we are failing at the old thing. We need to do a new thing. And, um, you know, we want you to, to dig deep and it's, it's going to be tough, but we appreciate the effort you're going to put in because at the end, if we, if we succeed, um, it will be enormously satisfying. And also we will all still have jobs. Because in business, of course, the price of failure is unemployment. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, it's, business is not a democracy, right? It's not like university where you just get to pick your courses. And if you fail at one course, you can try another course. It's, it, it, in business, problems are existential. If you don't, if you don't solve them, uh, people start losing their jobs. You know? And companies close and companies go bankrupt and go to the wall all the time because they cannot deal with change, basically. Mm. Like... With regards to, like, how can I say, your diverse and long career, have you, like, not from a manager's point of view, have you seen this being, a, like, at work when you've been, like, yeah, a, like a soldier in the trenches, say? Um, yes. Um, I think one of the most difficult things uh, that sort of happened to me was in 2014, I moved from New York to London to set up business inside the UK. And the original uh, mission there was that we would have a separate website for business inside the UK. It would serve a UK audience. The news on it would be UK focused and uh, we would sell that site to UK advertisers. And 
it was in its own way very successful. It had a much bigger audience than the Financial Times. It had a bigger audience than the Times or the Evening Standard or any of these, uh, uh, you know, any of these people, with the exception perhaps of the BBC, the Mail, and the Guardian. Um, the problem was that uh, there just there were not enough advertisers who wanted to reach UK readers through Insider in the in the uk basically and the uh, uk market for that for that proposition of what we were doing uh, turned out to be smaller than we um, needed it to be to sort of give you an idea um insider reaches hundreds of millions of people across the globe and you know the audience in the uk was like 10 million so even if we doubled the uk audience it would still look like a rounding error uh, among the hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people that we needed to reach, you know, we're sort of at Insider and at any media business of this size. By the way, this is not a, a secret about Insider. I'm sure BuzzFeed thinks the same way, and Huffington Post thinks the same way, and or the Guardian and the Mail. It, you know, it's the same for all of them. Mm. Uh, they're thinking to themselves, where do the where does the next fifty million people come from? Where does the next hundred million people come from? Um, so finding ten million new readers is not really helping <laughs> so we had to change what the team in london was doing um and we basically had to say to people you know look you've, you've done a great job but this is not moving the needle as far as we needed to go so we need to uh change everyone's priorities and goals and what we said to them is you, you can write about whatever you like you can write about whatever you like it can be about britain it can be not about britain um but you have to grow the audience and you have to make it bigger. So that means you now have the freedom to write about stuff in the in America, in the US, uh, or in fact, in any other country. So the mission became a lot more global. Mm. And basically, we said to people, we don't care what you write about, but we want, we want what you write about to be of interest globally so that you're reaching the biggest possible audience with your stories. And... The good news about that is that if you want to reach a big global audience, you have to you have to focus on big global stories. You know, you cannot focus on the small trivial ones that no one cares about. You have to focus on the really big stuff. So that's a big opportunity for for the, all the journalists there. Um, but you know, the other the other challenge was I'd I'd hired fifty people to write about the UK, and then I had, <laughs> and then and then I had to tell them. Uh, yeah, change of mission, guys. We're, <laughs> right we're about gonna, the world. <laughs> yeah, we're, now we're writing about the world. We're, we're broadening out the mission. Um, this was not an easy set of conversations to have. Um, for me personally, I had spent some time sort of defending the UK mission and saying, no, you know, we have succeeded. Why can't you understand this kind of thing? But yeah. eventually, you know, I have, although I was the boss of BIUK, I have bosses in America and those Americas, Americans have bosses in Germany, which is where the corporate headquarters of the uh, conglomerate ownership is. And then those guys in uh, Germany have bosses in various in, investors and uh, institutions that own their stock and so on and so forth. So everyone is in like a chain, you know, there's, yeah. there's never an ultimate boss. Um, so my bosses came to me and, and basically gave me the Domino's pizza thing. They were, they were like, you know, thank you for your hard work. It is not succeeding the way we needed to. You now need a new mission. Here it is. And uh, initially I resisted because I was very proud of what we had done. Mm. Uh, but ultimately I decided, 
you know, I have I have lost this argument. I've I've fought a good fight, but um, it's again, it's not a democracy. It's in a, inside a private company. It's not the case that you can sort of campaign and just pers- if you can persuade the majority of people you're right, you will be right. You know, that's yeah. not how <laughs> that's not how business works. So. I said I accepted, you know, I was forced to accept that I had lost this argument and that was difficult for me personally. It was, you know, a blow to my ego because my my name was on the door here, if you like. Yeah. And uh, so I then faced a choice. And my choice was, well, I could leave the company because, you know, whatever I have done here is not regarded as successful, even though in my opinion, it was, yeah. um, or I could, or I could just take a deep breath and say, you know what, I now have a new job and the new job is to make this global thing work. And it turned out that it did work. So this change took place when we had about 50 people in London. When I left London, we had 150 employees. So, so clearly, um, you know, the new mission was more successful. This was Domino's pizza, you know, in many ways. And now actually that's unfair. The, the, our old pizza was pretty good pizza. <laughs> but the new but the new pizza was the new pizza was in many ways demonstrably superior. <laughs> uh, it kind of blows my mind that you like you go, okay, yeah, I've set up something with 10 million, like 10 million people coming in on a daily, like on a month-to-month basis, and they're like, yeah, it's not good enough. It's it is a it is it was it was very disappointing for me personally. Um, but to make money on the internet, it depends where you are on the internet, of course. But in general, um, to make money on the internet, ten million people is not going to be enough. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, it sounds crazy. Like, no, but it 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 is crazy. You go ten million people. That that's not a small amount that is london oh, well think oh, about yeah but think about the operating logistics right so so to run a news organization 10 million readers need to sustain 50 employees uh-huh 50 employees i mean i don't know what the average salary would be but obviously it's in the tens of thousands of pounds they're all sitting at desks they all need a macbook there are legal bills administrative costs so on and so forth you can you know do your own back of the envelope maths but the cost of employing 50 people is quite high so you need advertisers willing to cover that and more to make a profit. And if you've only got 10, 10 million readers per month and advertising rates are, I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what CPMs are these days, but they're extremely low, right? You know, you can, if to reach a thousand people, it's pennies. Right. So um, reverse engineer that math and you, and you start to realize that you need, uh, you need way more than tens of millions of people to look at content before the money starts to become big enough to sustain a newsroom. Um, there are, of course, I don't want to sound discouraging because lots of people make a lot of money on the internet. It's actually, if you want to make profit, it's a lot easier j- to just be one person going viral on TikTok and get yourself sponsored than it is to run a newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, a bit like, there's a person out there like a ah. Oh. <laughs> There's a ah. Oh. Oh. Gonna start my media empire, but ah. Oh. Uh, well, is... no, you're you're in a good position because you're like you're one person, so you know you don't you don't have like you don't have to em- employ forty nine other people to get your podcast out there. So you're it will be easier for you to leverage yourself and win ultimately nice. than it would be for a big company. And that is the plan for the future. Yes. <laughs> it's like, 
Yes, my little media empire of me, myself, and I. Like my, my, if I ever does make money, I might scale that up to two, possibly three people. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, but yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, it, there's a term called eating the frog, and that sounds like it was a painful frog. Like, it's like eating the frog is where if you've got a task, you've got to do like a number of tasks during the day. It's mm-hmm. the worst. It's the worst task you take on first, so you get that out of the way. So you got the rest of the day free. Uh, yeah, <laughs> eating the frog. Yeah, eating the frog. Okay. Yeah, but like, I, that's that's interesting because I actually do it completely the opposite way. Really? Uh, yeah. If I have to, um, if there are certain things I have to do in the in the day, I will start off with the easiest, quickest one to execute, and then mm-hmm. I'll go to the next one because I like to sort of build momentum. And if I can just ah. like fix one thing. And have it off the list. I'm like, great, one down, five to go, and then the same with the second one. And like it, it to me, it feels like you can sort of build momentum through that. Uh-huh. If I started off with the hardest one, I, I wouldn't want to be, I don't know, demoralized when I'm uh, picking off the easier ones. Yeah. I'm not saying you're. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's one of the ways I did. Uh, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. But like, this is the thing with regards to a lot of people. Like, look at at success in either management or leadership or just basically success in their lives in general and if they've got to aim for this sort of lofty height of excellence to like yes i am the best in this because i have far exceeded everyone like you don't believe in that um no not really um i think one of the uh flaws or difficulty uh, of this whole sort of you know management advice or success advice or mm. if you're reading self-help books and stuff like that is that they set they say to you um you know strive to be excellent you should be excellent at your thing um i think uh, there's a book out there that suggests that to become really good at something you should do it for ten thousand hours mm-hmm. before you can do it um there's um uh, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, the former manager of um, Manchester United, wrote a book called Leading and the sort of the implicit oh, promise. The, <laughs> <laughs> the implicit promise of this book is that if you can just learn from Alex Ferguson, you can be as successful as him. Um, and there's a big focus on if you care about success, there's a big focus on looking at these like truly exceptional people like, uh, you know, Steve Jobs or an investor like Peter Thiel or Warren Buffett or someone like that. And to say, what can we learn from these people who really have had completely amazing careers where they're totally at the top of their game? Mm. And my point is, um, that's not going to be you. The chances of you being as good as those guys is very small. Like just statistically, it's extremely unlikely. Um, But what you can definitely do is be better than average. And it's actually not that difficult to be to become better than average. All you have to do is, is to sort of apply yourself diligently um, or just, in fact, figure out what the average performance is in your field and just do slightly better than that. Um, and first of all, if you can do that, you'll always be in the top half of people in your field, which right there is an achievement that is well within your grasp, right? right? And then the second thing you can do is, having done that, is just try to just get a little bit better at it every week or every day or every month 
or however you're you're measured. Um, it is if I was to come to you and to say, let's say you're selling cars. If I was to come to you and say, you know what, um, I want you to double the amount of cars you sell by next month. That, that's like a crazy difficult goal to reach if you're working at a car dealership. Mm. But if I came to you and just said, you know, just sell one more car next month than you did the previous month, that actually is very doable. Like you could probably do that if you're a, if you have experience selling cars. Um, and if you could do that for, you know, do that the next month and then the month after that and so on and so forth, um, what actually happens is that eventually you do double the amount of cars that you sell and uh but you have not done it by forcing people to to um you know jump over in insane uh insane mountains and so this is what i call uh the power of being slightly better than average um it doesn't feel like a very inspiring <laughs> um it doesn't feel like a very sort of uh inspiring mission to say you know be slightly better than average but if you can be slightly better than average and then you can improve your own performance or your own skill or your own experience just incrementally mm. week on week and month after month what happens is that uh you you are just gathering your your improvement will become uh you will become excellent but you will you will kind of do it slowly you won't you won't do it instantly basically mm. yeah no i i hear that and like this is one of those things where like one of the things I sort of believe in is uh, like be 2% better than you were the day before. It's, yeah. <laughs> it not, it's not, a, it's not a huge thing. And people like go, what? 2%. What do you, what do you mean by 2%? Just be 2% better. Like do 2% more than you were doing the day before. And mm-hmm. you'll be amazed at how quickly things all of a sudden, like through the compound of doing it, change you'll be like okay you were there you're at this level and now you're at yeah. this level and all you've like you're like going right you haven't done it each day it doesn't seem seem like you've done much but pow it makes yeah. a world of difference you know there's there's an example that, that a lot of people do in their ordinary lives every single day which which demonstrate this and it's you know if you go to the gym mm. if you lift weights or do exercises in the gym um if you can just do one more pull-up you know, even if you have to take a breather and like, you know, sit it out for two minutes and then just do one more pull up than you would normally do mm. before leaving the gym. And then the next day, you know, you go back to the gym a couple of days later and the next time do two more pull ups. You know, pretty, pretty soon, first of all, you will be able to do some of those extra pull ups without too much extra effort because you'll just be getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you know it, you're doing eight extra pull ups and then you're doing 16 extra pull ups and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the gains are really kicking in and anyone who, you know, if you go running or swimming or whatever it is, it's, it's not that difficult to say to a runner, just, you know, add an, an extra hundred yards on next time, you know, um, and people do this with their health in the gym all the time. What I'm suggesting is do it at work. Mm. There's a very old fashioned thing um, that people used to talk about. I'm not entirely sure how uh, useful this is, but it's the same sort of theme, which is a, lo- a lot of people who are su- who are successful will say that one thing they did was to arrive at work five minutes before everybody else does. And, you know, j- just to leave five minutes later than most people do. Um, you know, it's not it's not a big ask, uh, but it, it does demonstrate that you're willing to put in just slightly more effort than the average employee. 
employee. <laughs> Just like, hey, hey, how come you five minutes here? Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> ah, love it. Love it. So through this sort of work ethic, yes, great feedback. Great things have come out of it. Now, with like with like when you mentioned, yeah, like basically some of the great sort of people, like people we look up to, uh, like what people also forget is if a lot of that sometimes comes down to timing. Like if mm-hmm. you ask Steve Jobs to start Apple today, could you do it? Uh, you could, but it'll be a lot tougher because there is a computer market established and much of the sort of advancements which were there at that time don't exist today because they've failed. That's true. Um, the genius of Steve Jobs, though, was that he was not the first person to build uh, a home computer. No. right? And, and in fact, when he started building home computers for the consumer market, there were lots of other home computers uh, available to people. He just made sure that his was slightly better and slightly simpler for everyone to use. Um, and to this day, Apple's products are slightly better and slightly simpler for most people to use. And, the, you know, the re- I'm talking to you on a MacBook right now. Why am I using a MacBook? Because it's just slightly better and slightly simpler than the other laptops that are that are available. They're just easier to use. You don't need an instruction manual to use a, uh, a MacBook, right? Now, the I think part of the proof that Steve Jobs uh, was a genius was that in 2004, uh, we all had mobile phones, you know, uh, and I'm guessing me why you had a razor. Did you have a Motorola razor? Thankfully not. (laughs) 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 No, like put it this way. If it wasn't like at that time, I think I was flirting between Nokia and Sony Ericsson. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah. Like, oh, I had it. Well, I was a, I was always a Nokia man, but uh, I just figured you were like sort of a fashion forward guy, and you would have gone for the the, the sexy flip phone, the uh, big put, razor. Put this way, like okay, one of the things were like made me chuckle about the razor phone. Like one of my best mates, I will not, I will not say his name on the airwaves, but when we were out and about hitting the clubs and stuff like this, like he would have a regular Nokia phone, yeah. and he would have a razor. And every time he went up to a young lady, he'll whip out his razor phone and go say, yeah, how you doing? And still, like, take the number and then transfer it to the Nokia. <laughs> because the razor didn't work. Well, it was a case of, yeah, it, it worked, but he just didn't, like, have any credit on it. Uh, but he had credit I was like, right. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, flash, uh, look at the razor, flick. <laughs> That's funny. So in this environment, right, everyone has um, a mobile phone, but Steve Jobs is like, actually, I think a mobile phone should be able to show you the internet and it should, mm-hmm. have, it should have really good apps on it and it should be much more powerful. And so he, you know, he demanded that the iPhone be brought into existence and it, it was in 2004. And so that went, he went in to a crowded market where uh, brands like Motorola and Ericsson and uh, Nokia were already completely dominant. Yeah. And just because he made it better and simpler, um, iPhone now dominates that market. And so to return to your original question, would if Steve Jobs was alive today, how would he think about this? Um, I think he would look at, he would probably look at crypto 
and Web3 and digital assets mm. and tokenization and stuff like that. And he would say, he would look at this arena, which if you look at crypto right now, it's a total mess. Like it's a disaster area. It's not even clear if it's going to be useful. Uh, big parts of the industry are destructive. Um, there are a lot of bad actors in crypto and digital assets. Having said that, these people have invented something genu uh, gen genuinely new mm. and interesting, and someone will figure out a good use for it. And what I think Steve Jobs would do is say, look, here's a new technology. It's obviously not going away, um, but it's poorly used right now. It's difficult. It's complicated. Consumers generally don't like it and don't trust it. Why don't we use this, take it, and let's do a better, simpler version where Apple can dominate? I think that is what he would, that is where Steve Jobs would be thinking right now if he was still alive. Mm, interesting, interesting. Because, like, this is the thing when you talk about the crypto space, let's put the random coins aside and all that. Yeah. Because that is the wild, wild west on steroids, in my opinion. Yeah. When you're using it from the sort of terms of smart contracts, uh, I think there is a future there. I think there's something what can be used there. It's just, um, yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of uh, churn and burn of the nonsense uh, to get there on that side of things. Uh, yeah. That whole area to me feels like what the web used to feel like in the late 90s. Ah. You know, there was there was a huge growth in uh, usership on the web in the late 90s. Everyone had a website. Everyone was surfing around. Um, but very few people were making money on it. Uh, very few people were actually providing something useful or interesting or sustainable. Uh, and there was a big crash in 2000, right? It was a huge yes. crash. It brought down the economy. A lot of the those early web businesses went to the wall. Um, you know, my... Uh, what was my... <laughs> The email provider that I had my first ever email with no longer exists. Um, you know, my first ever social media was on a site called The Globe, no longer exists. <laughs> Even though The Globe functionally did exactly what Facebook does now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact is, you're absolutely right. The industries have to go through this churn and burn where developing something like Facebook but developing it in 1998 turns out to be useless. What you actually need is to have the technology get a little bit better and the interface get a little bit better and to um, just have a better experience and better knowledge about what consumers really want from these things. And then when you launch your Facebook in 2004, you've got it right. And so I think crypto is in that area right now. It's Right now it's a mess. No one really knows what's going to work. But in a few years, the winners will, will emerge and the losers will go to the wall. Mm. I have to ask, did you invest in any of the coins or whatnot? <laughs> um, so one of my big regrets is not buying one of these coins. Uh, you know, I've, at Insider, I first heard about this stuff in about 2011, of course, when, and I remember we did a news story about Bitcoining, Bitcoin that? reaching $100. Oh, um, that, was a, that was a big price. And then Bitcoin reached $1,000, and that was a big price at the time. Um, but, uh, and I wrote stories about Bitcoin and uh, this whole area and certainly edited a few, but I could never convince myself that it, it was useful because Bitcoin is not an asset. It doesn't represent anything. It, it's The price of Bitcoin simply represents the demand for Bitcoin versus the supply of Bitcoin. Mm. Um, there's no underlying asset. It's not like buying a stock or an equity or a bond or shares. It, it, 
it's you know it it, it has no value other than its value it's a price it's not really it's not an asset it's a price yeah um so i was just very very wary of it uh, of course i absolutely should have <laughs> bought a bunch <laughs> and uh, just kept it i um i have a source actually who several years later i was on the phone with this guy for some unrelated reason i was trying to interview him about something and i knew he lived in boston and um it was like uh it was like sort of like nine in the morning london time but he was on the phone with me which meant it was four in the morning boston time and i said to him why why are you awake what are you why are you answering the phone at this hour and he said i'm looking at the price of bitcoin and the, the price had just gone to twenty thousand dollars a bitcoin oh and i said to him well why are you looking at that and he goes because i own about 50 of them and i said wow you when did you buy them and he said, well, actually, Jim, you and I had a conversation about this in 2012. And after I talked to you, I bought them. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and, now, and now I feel like an idiot. I did, not, I did not buy them. Having said that, full disclosure, um, earlier this year, I did buy a small amount of Ethereum. Ah. Um, not because I, uh, I mean, I'm not investing in crypto. I just wanted to understand how it worked and... Uh, just felt smart to you know buy a few and watch it and see what happens basically i am interested in the ethereum's move to the uh you know the merge to the new blockchain which will use um a fraction of the energy of the old blockchain um because uh, a thing i really worry about and a thing i re really dislike about crypto is the amount of energy it uses is really destructive like it is mm. crypto is is contributing to global warming like it is bad um, so this Ethereum blockchain merge um, can only be a good thing. Yeah, no, because that's one of the, like people talk about the sort of environmental impact of like the well uh, of the blockchain uh, across the world, but I don't think they've really sort of truly sat down and gone. This is the deep, deep, deep environmental impact. I think they've just touched the surface of it because the amount of coins which have come up. And mm -hmm. that disappearing, coming back. And it's just getting, it was a point where it was just getting ridiculous uh, this time last year. It's calmed down now because I think confidence has ebbed away, if you get yeah. anything from a lot of the stuff, because there was too much pump and dump, in my opinion. Uh, you get a fancy influencer like a peer. I've mm -hmm. got this coin. Yeah, like, what is it? BS coin. Like investing in it today, it's gonna go to the moon, diamond hands. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it just went as slightly awry, you know. I mean, that th there's there's a really serious question to ask about what is the point of almost all of these coins? Because today, you know, I can't walk down any high street and buy stuff with Bitcoin or even Ethereum. You know, I don't. If you ask me to spend my ethereum or my bitcoin I'm, it's difficult for me to think of a normal thing to buy mm. um you know so there is still a complete lack of purpose to 99 percent of all crypto coins but these crypto coins are using electricity at the rate of entire countries which is massively destructive to the environment it produces a, a large amount of carbon dioxide the public or society or governments would be very easily justified in, in saying this is a waste. This is an industry that has no purpose whatsoever. It's and it's only destructive. Therefore, it should be illegal. Do you, you know, so the crypto world really needs to 
um, come up with a reason to exist beyond merely existing. Mm. Do you think that they will actually, like, yeah, start banning, like, sort of cryptocurrencies in uh, large ways, do you reckon? Or uh, the sort of concept of the blockchain? No. Um, I think what will happen is that the crypt- people in the crypto industry will lobby governments very, very hard to have governments regulate them. Mm. Now, crypto people hate regulation and they think that the entire point of crypto is that uh, it can exist whether regulation exists or not, right? Um, the, you know, because it's private and it's permanent and, and it's transparent and uh, therefore is not subject to laws. Um, but the truth is there's an, an enormous amount of money at stake. And when people have an enormous amount of money at stake, they want to make sure that money is preserved. And the very best way to preserve money and to preserve assets is to ask the government to regulate your industry. Because even though everyone hates regulation, if the government regulates you, the very first step in regulating you is making you legal. And once you are legal, then whatever the other regulations are, that's uh, much more academic. Because if you're legal, it means the government is extremely unlikely to destroy that wealth by banning it or taking it away. So I think what what you will see is a lot of lobbying to say, oh, crypto is a commodity. Crypto is a type of currency. Um, please regulate. Please regulate us like a commodity, or please regulate us like a a currency. Um, and they will happily pay taxes because, again, once an industry is paying taxes, governments are very reluctant to ban an industry that is paying taxes for for obvious reasons. Why do tobacco companies still exist, even though they literally sell poison? Gotta be because that they, revenue. They pay taxes. <laughs> So, you know, crypto is going to be like that. Crypto is going to be like, please regulate us because that will legalize us and therefore permanently ensure our existence. Mm, interesting. interesting. No, I've got, no, no, crypto, all of that type of thing. It's a little bit like at this moment in time, it's pie in the sky, kind of like the metaverse and all that type of side of things. Yeah. But like with regards to sort of management, like, okay, you like you mentioned another t- like a number of times like yes uh sim- like simpler and easy now with regards to management it in its future and leadership fit, like, mm-hmm. how do you think it's going to be made simpler and better <laughs> that's that's a very complicated question um there is no easy answer to that there is Managing people is not going to become simpler. I mean, you can make it a bit better. Mm. Um, it's not going to become simpler because the world is not going to become simpler. The world is only becoming more complex. So managing people is only going to become more difficult and more complex, in my opinion, which is, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book. The <laughs> <laughs> job is becoming more difficult and uh, therefore uh, you should read the book and it will help you. Um, <laughs> um can you make your question more specific because i'm struggling to uh hooray thank you I'm, right. I'm struggling to give you a sensible answer right okay how what would make things easier and better for managers is oh not with people, but for like either putting systems into place 
on a day-to-day -day basis to make their jobs either simpler or easier? Okay, so one thing that was really helpful to me at Insider was uh, the company gives its employees a very large amount of data about the performance of their stories and their work and traffic on the sites and stuff like that. So that any employee, even a, even a fellow, even an intern, um, can pretty much see the exact same information that management is looking at about their performance, their colleagues' performance, their team's performance, the performance of the company as a whole. Um, this, as a manager, made my job easier because, uh, first of all, everyone is starting from the same place when it comes to information. Everyone knows exactly what we're looking at, what the issues are, what we're dealing with. No one's under any illusion that they're doing well, if in fact they're doing badly. And no one's under any illusion if, if someone is doing badly that they're doing well, right? So there's, there's no illusions. That um, is really useful. Uh, the other thing that I found really useful that I think managers should do, but they don't think of this very much, is you want your people, you want your employees and your teams to track their own performance with checkable data, you know, data that you can check to make sure they're not faking it, basically. Um, but you want them to produce their own data and to report that data up to you about their performance routinely so that the, the, uh, so that the manager is not doing it all himself. And there's, there's two things that are valuable about this. First of all, it focuses people on tracking their own performance so that they can see the value that they are creating so that they can see their success and that they know what success looks like and also they know when you know they're screwing up and when they're failing mm. but the other thing is you want them to progress over time and having them crunch the numbers regularly will seeing that success it will help them see that success over time it will help them see whether they're growing or whether they're going down over time they're not just like living on a day-to-day -day basis like a goldfish where they can't remember what just happened and you know, they come into work, do the job and leave, and they don't care about the long term. Um, and working with people underneath you who really understand what the issues are and who really understand the data and uh, the relative performance of themselves and their people, that's that is tremendously useful. So, uh, yeah, so having having staff track their own data and present it upwards to you um, doing that routinely is like really, really useful. It really helps you make decisions. Um, one thing it helps you with is, you know, re regardless of whether someone can show you a chart of numbers where the numbers are going up and things look great, yeah. is some people are, some people can do this and like it and are good at it and can, and can present you regularly with really good, interesting information that tells a story and demonstrates a point about the value that they're bringing or the problems they're trying to solve. Um, other people don't care. You know, other people are bad at this and they don't understand why this is interesting or valuable or crucial and they forget to do it or they present their data in a haphazard, lackadaisical way. And this tells you as a manager instantly, maybe this person should not be promoted. Because ah. if, if you're doing work and you don't care about you don't care about the performance of the work. You don't care about whether your customers liked it or not. Mm -hmm. um, then what do you care about? You know? What do they care about? Have They're not truly buying into what the sort of culture of the 
places or just basically execution of their yeah. job in just general. Yeah, so there's there's work has a value, but people often define the value incorrectly. If you know, if I make shoes, uh, my shoes, I I might think that the shoes I make are really really awesome, but if no one wants to buy them, are they any good? No, mm. they're probably not good, right? There's a reason no one wants to buy my shoes. Maybe they're too expensive. Maybe they're ugly. You know, so my personal opinion about the quality of my shoes is is neither here nor there. You know, you demonstrate that your shoes are good by selling lots of them. So, so first of all, whether your customers or your readers or your users or whoever your um, target audience is, um, you know, they have to buy. They have to buy and consume what you produce, and that is a demonstration of value. And it demonstrates whether it demonstrates something about whether what you are doing is good or not, right? Mm. Um, so that's important. So you have to care about what people, about what other people think of your products and whether they are willing to act and buy it or read it or consume it or, what, or whatever it is. Um, there are other types of work where um, sometimes you just do some work that is that makes the company look good and is good for the brand, right? So for instance, car companies will make really amazing prototype vehicles that they will display at car shows and they're like incredibly sexy and amazing and futuristic looking and they never put them into production right that those cars are just there to demonstrate to people that you know yes we have the technology we have the design chops we can do this if we wanted to because we're cool um but they're not going to actually sell them because they know no one's going to buy that stuff you know no one's going <laughs> to buy a two-seater three-wheeler for a hundred thousand pounds <laughs> you know even if it's got wings um no one's going to buy that but they want to demonstrate that they have the ability that they have the internal talent to produce something like that and it helps the brand right so that kind of work without performance is fine as long as it's limited and in its place you can't have your entire team doing that you know the people at ford they can't stop making uh do they still does the ford escort still exist whatever the (laughs) What's the most what's the most common Ford car? I don't know, the F-150? Oh, van. No, the F-150. Transit van, Ford Transit van. Ford right. Transit in the UK, Ford Transit van. In America, yeah, it is the Ford 150 Raptor yeah. or Lightning or like yeah. Uh, All right, so it, the Ford Transit Vans for for our foreign listeners. <laughs> the white Ford Transit van is the van that your plumber will show up at, at your house in uh, to fix a leak in your house. Like every plumber, every electrician, every builder will show up in a Ford Transit. Um, Ford is not going to stop making the Ford Transit. Ford is not going to be like, no, from now on, we're only going to make the Batmobile, you know, because it's the the most amazing, sexy car we can come up with. We can definitely make it, and it's going to cost everyone £200,000, but it has wings and it can fly. So, you you know, get about about the Ford Transit. £200,000, I'll be impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'll show up with the money tomorrow. (laughs) Forget about your white vans. We're only selling Batmobiles from now on because we're um, you know we're amazing and cool that will never happen um you cannot have your entire company making batmobiles some people really have to care about the ford transit mm. you know because that is that is what pays the rent at ford yeah it's the bread and butter it's the bread and butter to yeah. that uh, daily cash as they say but yeah the, the the flip side of this is that there is an old-fashioned view of work in which someone shows up to work, they work really hard, 
the quality of their work may be really, really good. And the company pays them to do the work, but their consumers and readers and users are not interested in that work being done. And a lot of companies have some people doing this, some teams doing this, or maybe an individual doing this. They've just done the same job for years. They come in, they do the work, they leave. And those people assume my work has value because I did the work mm. and because you paid me to do it. Therefore, it must have value. Actually, that is not how work is valued. You know, the, the work has to have some use beyond the fact that you did it. I think, I would say the vast majority of people don't actually understand uh, the value of their work to uh, like to a company's entity. Like they go, oh, we produce yeah. X and it costs that much money. So we've made that much money for the company. This is why yeah. I get paid. But when you sort of break it down into it's like sort of everything what goes into it, you're like, oh, yeah, you didn't make that much money. It's like you most really made a couple hundred pounds, say, yeah, at yeah. the end of it. So and they just like, oh, what? And when you break so, it down that way, it comes. So I, I appreciate right now that I sound like a, a, a very ruthless capitalist. But in fact, this is, <laughs> well, no, the, the value of this for workers, this is incredibly valuable for workers. Yeah. Because if you have your workers tracking their own performance and being able to demonstrate upwards the value of what they do, what those workers will discover is that sometimes management does not quite understand where the real value is in the company and who's really productive and who's really succeeding mm. and where the, the real value is being created. And when workers are able to go to management and, and, and to, on a regular basis and to be able to say, hey, these are the results, this is the data, and I can demonstrate to you as a matter of fact that I achieved this and this was successful, and you know it generated these sales or it generated these users or whatever the metric is, um, that puts workers in a really powerful position. And mm. a thing that always sticks in my mind from my time at Insider is, you know, we tracked everyone's performance and we had this one guy, uh, he's very quiet. You know, he's, he's not one of these like talk of good game guys. He's not, he's not like you, Miwa. He was very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, sir? Yeah, so very low key guy, low key guy. And also he worked the weekends. Low key too. <laughs> <laughs> he worked the weekends, right? So I'm only even sharing three days of the week with him. He's working on the weekends. I'm not. I'm his boss. I'm not working on the weekends. Um, he was also in a different time zone to me, um, which meant we got very little FaceTime at all. So he's like very low on my radar, right? Looked at the numbers. This guy is producing twice the audience of any other member of the team, which made me think, you know, if this guy quits and goes to work for someone else, I would have to hire two people to just replace the productivity that he was bringing, right? And the reason I knew that was because we're tracking the performance. And one thing we did was when his performance review came around, we gave him a fat pay rise and you know, made, it, made it very clear to him that he was a total rock star and he should continue doing what he, you know, we locked him in basically. Mm. But had we not done the data, uh, we, that, that may have flown under the radar and we could have lost the guy. And then, you know, six months later, we're scratching our heads. Why, you know, why are our numbers down? Um, because the quiet guy left. Yeah. You know, so, so it's valuable for me as a manager to see, to know that data and to know that someone who is not, you know, like the, uh, an office David Brent, you know, <laughs> sometimes the quiet people in the room are the productive ones and you, and you need to know that. But also it's empowering for those quiet people, for those workers to be able to demonstrate themselves to management. Hey, I'm twice as good as the person next to me. Mm. Not, 
with regards to that, like there is, I think with everything which is going on and which might might happen in the near future with regards to like, yes, the economic climate and everything like that, being able to demonstrate value when like maybe some companies might start cutting uh, people here and there will be a saving grace for someone's job or they'll be able to see where, how far they can go, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mm. I, I have, like, this will be my final question. Then you'll be free to go off into the night. <laughs> Friday night. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Party on. Now, with regards to yourself, like, where do you want, like, you've got the book out now and you're going forward. Where do you want this journey of yours to, like, take you in the next few years? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, I would like it if the book is a success. Um, and even if it's not a success commercially, but by the way, I'm under no illusions about book success. Um, very, very few books <laughs> make a lot of money. Um, uh, I would like the, uh, you know, but I would like the book to help people. I would mm -hmm. like to, if you've read the book, I would like people to tell me if it was useful and if they liked it. That would be very gratifying. Um, I am, that's a really good question because I've sort of asked myself that question. What do I want to do next with my career? Um, the book was the thing I was going to do next, but now the book is out. I have to come up with something else. Um, I am, uh, I, just, <laughs> I don't want to give it away, but I'm, I'm working on two ideas um, with two different companies. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to some investors about these projects um i think one or both of them will come good um so there will be a final act um but uh and the other thing is i'm you know i'm I'm doing some consulting for uh companies that want um <laughs> that uh that want to know how to you know how do you hire people how do you how do you make journalists succeed that kind of thing um yeah that's a good question because i do not have a very good answer for it to be honest. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a privileged position. I'm, I'm pretty lucky. You know, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I've had a good career. I've got a book out. Um, I've got time and space in which to think, and I can choose what I do next. Um, I don't have to, I don't have to get a job, put it that way. So I've got, I've got this luxury and, Honestly, what I am what I am doing right now is enjoying that luxury because I don't want to make the mistake that I myself have made uh, two or three times in the past, which is to just take a job because I need a job. Um, the thing I want to do next is something uh, you know I want to be really excited about it. I want to be really into it, um, and I want it to be really interesting and satisfying. So, but I can't, you know. And I've got, as I say, I've got a couple of things I I am hoping to build. Um, but I don't want to talk. I don't want to jinx them by saying them out loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone's allowed to have an air of mystery about them, Jim. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, I have to say, yeah, thank you very much for your time today, sir. You have been thank you for having me on, a gen and a scholar. Uh, yeah, how can the lovely people out there find you on these interwebs? 
you can find um, Say Thank You for Everything, a book by, you know, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's also, you can buy it directly from Harriman House as well. Uh, just Google Say Thank You for Everything book. It should come right up. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jim Edwards. I'm at Jim underscore Edwards. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jim Edwards123. Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find, to be honest. I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> You know, all of the all of the platforms are pretty easy to find. Excellent. I will put all of the information into the show notes, into the description, so you can go out there, find him, buy his book. Yes. Purchase it. Go out there and buy many <laughs> copies. Yes. Thanks, uh, No worries. No worries at all, Jim. Pleasure having you on. And I'd like to say thank you to you, my friends, my life warriors who have stuck with us to the end of the show. Please stay well, stay safe, be awesome, be excellent, be fantastic. Be all the positive things you can be in this world and then some. Have a great day, guys. Yes. Peace. And we are...